This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. What we are witnessing are war crimes, blatant barbaric war crimes, slaughtering civilians, abusing hostages. There are no words to describe such savagery. That's what they are. They are resistance. Do you think Canada is a colonialist country too? Everything that they do is justified. Hamas is not like you. They don't think like you. They don't have the same priorities as you. It is a genocidal group. The horror has reached an unimaginable level. Hamas, cowards as they are, are hiding all of their military infrastructure beneath the civilians. That is wrong. That is a war crime to use civilians as human shields. The hardest part of proving genocide has been proven for us with these very open statements of genocidal intent by Israeli officials, their intention not to distinguish between civilians and combatants and to carry out the kinds of wholesale slaughter that we are witnessing in Gaza. Targeting civilians and taking hostages are war crimes. How can you justify attacking civilian targets? I have to say that uh, this is the uh, story from the Israeli side. It's a story, fake story, used to kill more Palestinians. But this is right, the, but, the, but the, the question was, how do you justify attacking civilian targets? That was the actual you are, question. You are, you are asking the wrong question. No, no, no. The, the question was, how can you justify you attacking civilian the, targets? This is a wrong question, I, and I'm not going to the same game of the Israelis. He would deny the Jewish people the only dignity left to us that we were victims of genocide, and he would say that we are the Nazis, we are the Gestapo, for simply wanting to I defend didn't say ourselves any of that. against the brutality and the savagery of, of Hamas. Now, 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 now he is a Holocaust denier because he is saying that the Nonsense. Jews are engaged Total in a genocide lie. of the Can Palestinians. Now, isn't the collective punishment of all Gazans also, by definition, a war crime? Not really, because the situation is very clear. The problem with Hamas is that they're committing a double um, war crime because they are targeting only civilians. We told the, uh, the Gazan people to clear the area temporarily so we can go and take Hamas out. Hamas has turned Gaza into an enemy state. She's the same woman who said every Zionist before they die should hear pop pop before they die. So she probably agrees with the massacre. So why would she condemn them? I think we're the media is part of manufacturing consent. We're talking about you. I'm speaking here, and I don't. I'm not interested in speaking to genocide deniers. Genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, words uttered frequently and with passion. But do those hurling the accusations know exactly what they mean in the eyes of the law? Or are the angry debates a result of international law's failure to adequately prosecute and deter 70 years of violence and civilian bloodshed around the world? Those are urgent questions for today. So we will begin by going back to what was the start of the creation of modern war crimes law, World War II and the Nuremberg Trials. It was there that a young Jewish-American lawyer barely 27 years old, gave clear shape to the concept of crimes against humanity. We are now ready to hear the presentation by the prosecution. This was the tragic fulfillment of a program of intolerance and arrogance. My name is Benjamin Ferenz. When I was 27 years old, which was a long time ago, I was the chief prosecutor for the United States. Uh, at one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials. The case we present is a plea of humanity to law. 
which tried and convicted 22 high-ranking Nazis of murdering in cold blood over a million people, mostly Jews and mostly in the Ukraine. We shall establish, beyond the realm of doubt, facts which, before the dark decade of the Third Reich, would have seemed incredible. Benjamin Ferenc died in April of this year. He was 103. He was also the last living prosecutor of the Nuremberg Trials. Almost exactly one year before his death, April 2022, Ferenc gave us one of the final interviews of his life. We talked to him then about civilian deaths and allegations of war crimes in the context of the war in Ukraine. Ferenc took us back to 1947 and described how the concept of crimes against humanity crystallized at Nuremberg. I found, personally, I found the records of the special extermination squads known as Einsatzgruppen in German. Their assignment was to kill all the Jews in Europe. Reports will show that the slaughter committed by these defendants was dictated not by military necessity, but by that supreme perversion of thought, the Nazi theory of the master race. They sent a daily report back to the headquarters in Berlin listing which units, A, B, C, or D, of the Einsatzgruppen were located where in the Ukraine, for example, and how many people they had killed. When I totaled a million people murdered on a little adding machine, I went to Nuremberg from Berlin, where my headquarters was then located, and said, we have to put on a new trial. He said, we can't. The lawyers have already all been assigned. The Pentagon is not enthusiastic about this. We can't get approval. I said, you can't let these people go. I have in my hand here a million people murdered. You're not going to let those bastards get off. And he said, well, can you do it in addition to your other work? And I said, sure. He said, okay, you do it. I ended up there as my first case. And you said, it takes a long time. It took me a long time. Two days. Two days. And I arrested the prosecutor's case, and I convicted all of them. We shall show that these deeds of men in uniform were the methodical execution of long-range plans to destroy ethnic, national, political, and religious groups which stood condemned in the Nazi mind. Genocide the extermination of whole categories of human beings was a foremost instrument of the Nazi doctrine. That was what we were trying to do. We were trying to bring justice in place of vengeance because vengeance just begets more vengeance. And I made it a specific point. I said the opening statement, vengeance is not our goal. Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity, regardless of his race or creed. The trial of the Einsatzgruppen at Nuremberg was Ferenc's very first case as a practicing lawyer. It was the largest murder trial in history. All of the defendants, 22 Nazi officials, including six generals, were convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Thirteen were sentenced to death, and four were ultimately executed. In a 2018 interview, Ferenc said, quote, My problem as the prosecutor was to ask, what do I ask for? Do I ask to sentence them all to death? Twenty-two defendants against a million people murdered? 
I said there's no way of balancing enough, of doing justice there. But if I could get them to create a more humane world using this as an example, that would be worthwhile, end quote. And it was an example. The concept of crimes against humanity began to emerge at the Nuremberg trials, laying the groundwork for the 1948 UN Treaty on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. It also led to the creation of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which came into force in 2002. The United States, Israel, and more than 20 other nations have never joined the ICC. Palestinian leaders recognized the court in 2009. Ferenc remained a towering figure in international human rights law. He was invited to give the closing statement in the ICC's very first trial in 2009. In the case of Thomas Lubanga de Yilo, he was accused of the forcible conscription and abuse of child soldiers in Congo. In his closing statement, Ferenc, then 92 years old, repeated purposefully and exactly the words he'd used at Nuremberg. Once again... The case we present is a plea of humanity to law. The hope of humankind that compassion and compromise may replace the cruel and senseless violence of armed conflict. Vengeance begets vengeance. The illegal use of armed force, which is the soil from which all human rights violations grow, must be condemned as a crime against humanity. International disputes must be resolved not by armed force, but by peaceful means only. Let the voice and the verdict of this esteemed global court now speak for the awakened conscience of the world. And also, as he'd done in Nuremberg, at the Lubanga trial, Ferenc urged the International Criminal Court never to drift from its duty to deter future war crimes. Punishing perpetrators was recognized as a legal obligation. What makes this court so distinctive is its primary goal to deter crimes before they take place by letting wrongdoers know in advance that they will be called to account by an impartial international criminal court. The law can no longer be silent, but must instead be heard and enforced to protect the fundamental rights of people everywhere. When Ben Ferenc spoke with us last year, age 102, he had not lost faith in the power of international human rights laws. Even as he acknowledged, successful prosecutions are exceedingly difficult and exceedingly rare. But we can't be defeated by the fact that there are some people who don't believe in the rule of law. They believe in power. Uh, They want to exercise it whenever they think it's in their interest to do so. And they're a very sizable number of people. So it's not something where everybody is of one mind. There are some people who believe in the rule of force. The only hope really is law, not war. The three words, law, not war. Benjamin Ferenc. He was the last living prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials, and he gave us one of his final interviews in the spring of last year. Ferenc died this past April at the age of 103. So in the context of the kinds of wars and conflicts we're seeing now, specifically 
between Israel and Hamas. What are the international laws of war and human rights that determine when a war crime or genocide has been committed? And why is it so hard to bring alleged criminals to trial? We'll hear from two experts on those critical questions when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Joining us now is Yanina Dill. She holds the chair in global security at Oxford University School of Government, and she's co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. Professor Dill, welcome to On Point. Thanks. Hi, Meghna. Also with us today is Michael Bryant. He's a professor of history and legal studies at Bryant University. No relation between the two, he tells us. He's also vice president of the Bornstein Holocaust Education Center and author of A World History of War Crimes from Antiquity to the Present. Professor Bryant, welcome to you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let me start with this basic question um, that takes us from uh, Ben Ferenc, which we heard from in the past segment, to now. Professor Bryant... How was the uh, concept of crimes against humanity really defined at Nuremberg? The great cradle for the crime against humanity in international law really is the, the Nuremberg war crimes trials of 1945 and 1946, and in particular the charter of, um, of the Nuremberg war crimes trials, uh, sometimes referred to as the London Charter because it was written in London and uh, published in August of 1945. And the London Charter set forth the substantive offenses that would then be woven into the indictment of the major war criminals, as they were called, in October of 1945 when the indictment was rendered. So what were these, these offenses? Uh, the big ones were crimes against peace, mm. uh, crimes against uh, humanity, of course, and, and war crimes. There was also a charge of... of uh, membership in a criminal organization and a charge of conspiracy leveled against the major war criminals. But the crime is against humanity charge was really pioneered there. And um, there was some talk at the time about going back to, uh, to World War I and some statements that were made by diplomats at that time expressing horror 
at what was happening to um, to Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. And of course, this is considered mm-hmm. the first first great genocide of the 20th century, the destruction of Armenians at the hands of Ottoman Turks. Some diplomats, uh, primarily in Eastern Europe, were referring to these these crimes already as crimes crimes against humanity or against the law of humanity. So can I just add, uh, jump in here for a moment? Because um, the the phrases, right, crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, uh, Genocide. I guess genocide has a very clear definition, but but um, the first two, and especially the big one, you said uh, it's it seems like kind of a almost a, a a foggy term for a specific set of actions, right? I mean, how were those actions? What were they, or how were they defined? Well, I think you're right that it, uh, especially at that time, was a fairly foggy kind of nebulous term, and and this created some problems at Nuremberg, especially the charge of retroactive prosecution, which the Nazis uh, raised against the. Uh, against the, the prosecution, claiming that, that these offenses had no anchorage in international law and were simply uh, uh, you know, the, the, the whim of the, of the victor after winning uh-huh. a, a major conflict. Uh, of course, the court did not accept that, uh, that interpretation and was able to go back and demonstrate how there were always these principles seeking to defend, for example, the integrity of civilians or to preserve civilian property or the lives of civilians which really go way, way back. And the basis really of what's called today international humanitarian law has very ancient roots. It goes back at least to the Middle Ages. I argue in my Mm -hmm. book that it goes back even further than that. But at the very least in the West, it goes back to the Middle Ages with uh, uh, with canon law and other other bodies of law that expressed a concern for the well-being of of not just combatants but also of civilians. civilians. Okay. Well, so, Professor Dill, let me turn to you then. have those concepts, and I'm really trying to understand the, the specific legal definitions of those con- concepts, have they changed sig- significantly since like 1947 to, to now? Um, or here's another way of asking it. What specifically would have ha- would need to happen for uh, international prosecutors to think, yes, this qualifies as a crime against peace or a crime against humanity? So what has happened really over time is in some sense what we would call a crystallization of these terms. So they have become clarified over time and they're now really anything but nebulous. They're all spelled out very clearly in the Rome Statute, which is the treaty that founded the International Criminal Court. And the three types of crimes that are particularly relevant to us when we talk about the current conflict in in Gaza would be war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And they have very clear definition that are spelled out. Every crime has always two elements. One is an act that is outlawed and even criminalized. And the Rome Statute lists the acts that are fall under these three types of crimes. And then each um, crime also has a mental element. So that's the state of mind that the perpetrator had to have had while doing the criminal act for it to count as a crime. And um, war crimes are always have to be committed with intent and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then the difference to crimes against humanity and genocide is that they have a so-called special intent requirement. So the act has to be committed with the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. That makes it genocide. And for an act to fall under the category of crimes against humanity, the perpetrator has to have known that it is part of a large widespread system systematic attack against the civilian population. Okay. So some acts overlap, right? So a murder can be a war crime or it can be a crime against humanity. The difference would be the intent attached to it. Okay. So in that case, um, as you heard at the very beginning of the show, there has been a lot of back and forth accusation of uh, 
allegations of crimes against humanity or genocide in the current war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, do you see, given the the intent um, requirement that you just described, Professor Dill, and the specific actions, um, do you see potential evidence of of crimes against humanity having happened in uh, in uh, Israel and Gaza? Yeah, intent is always the hardest part to see from the outside, which is why we can never have a definitive judgment that a crime has been committed. Even just, you know, seeing intent, not not a special intent, but any kind of intent is difficult. But when we look at the um, attacks by Hamas on October 7th, then um, some of these sort of repertoires of violence that we see here, for instance, rape, torture, hostage-taking, and murder, they in some sense carry evidence of their intent, that they are necessarily directed against the civilian population. There's no really like legitimate military purpose that could in principle attach to them. So rape and murder in particular can be crimes against humanity if they are committed in this context of a widespread systematic attack. So we would have to then show that the people involved in these attacks actually knew that this was happening. And while it is not possible from the outside to definitively say that's the case. I think there's enough evidence here to um, warrant an investigation and also to express that um, as part of the public discourse, I'd say. Investigation into whom? Well, in this case, it would be into Hamas, right? That doesn't mean there isn't also um, enough evidence to investigate um, the IDF, I think, in this case, for a different type of repertoire of violence. And here, it's sometimes harder to see the intent at work. So, for instance, um, attacking the civilian population intentionally or intentionally attacking a civilian object that can be a war crime, right? But unlike, say, in the case of rape, the intent isn't necessarily visible in the action itself because an airstrike by the IDF against Gaza can also be a legitimate act of warfare. So in some sense, the evidentiary threshold here is a little higher and it's a little harder to say from the outside. But I think as we've already heard, um, statements by senior military and political leadership in Israel and the context of these attacks um, provides enough evidence to suggest, again, an investigation here is warranted. Mm. Professor Bryant, uh, go ahead and, and respond to that. What do you think? No, every I agree entirely with what uh, Professor Dill is saying. I mean, of course, these developments are all post-1945. And mm-hmm. before, before the Nuremberg war crimes trials, there really was no concept of crimes against humanity in international law. Again, we have expressions of concern for protecting civilians that you will find, for example, in the, um, in the 1899 Hague Convention and then its successor convention in 1907. Uh, but the Geneva Conventions and even much of the Hague Convention, uh, the Brussels Declaration, the St. Petersburg Declaration, these are all instruments of the late 19th century uh, on the cusp of World War I. Nearly all of these instruments really focused upon combatants and, and protecting combatants, uh, limiting the, the kinds of instruments of war that could be used, the weaponry of war that could be used. There were relatively few protections afforded to civilians and whatever protections were afforded, such as in siege conditions in the 1899 Hague Convention talks about uh, what could be done and what could not be mm-hmm. done in a siege situation during, during war. But, but nearly all of these protections proved to be uh, completely ineffective in World War I. They were just widely disregarded on both sides. And so there was a perception then uh, after World War I that, that steps had to be taken to try to, to remedy this situation. There was some discussion of revising the, the Geneva Conventions to make them more centered upon protecting civilians. But of course, uh, 
with the rise of fascism in the 1930s and eventually the, out, the outbreak of World War II, those sorts of concerns were swept away. And then we have World War II, mm-hmm. which just saw rampant and wholesale destruction of civilian populations, either in death camps with poison gas right. or in aerial bombardment. Um, millions, tens of millions of people, both in, in Asia and also in Europe, wiped out. And 1945 then represents yet another moment when uh, policymakers and political leaders come together and say, we need to do something about this. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought up that point. And let me turn back to Professor Dill here, because um, in comparing uh, or, or, the, or Professor Bryant just adic- completely accurately laid out the fact that, yes, there were the Nazi death camps that resulted in the in the murder of millions of people. There were also like the firebombing of Dresden, the use of two atomic weapons uh, in in Japan. However, only one group was actually brought to trial, right? It was the Nuremberg trials against Nazi crimes. Are, I mean, this may be too obvious to ask, but are we simply in a situation that the the victor determines who comes to trial, Professor Dill? That is what the International Criminal Court is meant to remedy. The idea that after a war ends, only one side gets systematically brought to justice and we sort of put the sort of cone of silence over what the other side did. There have been attempts to remedy this before with the principle of universal jurisdiction, where in principle every domestic court can try someone for crimes against humanity or genocide. But it is really the establishment of the International Criminal Court that is supposed to be that quantum leap, where it's like we have a permanent institution dedicated specifically to trying perpetrators of these heinous crimes wherever they are and whichever party to the conflict they belong to. So in some sense, we are supposed to be in a new era. It's not supposed to be about Victor's justice uh-huh. anymore. But of course, there are political barriers to to the realization of that vision. Right. So, so I was just examining the ICC's website here. Um, and its own website says that it's held, uh, what, 31 trials so far. And I looked at the list of all of the defendants. Um, and interestingly, almost all of them are from Africa, regarding uh, crimes uh, uh, committed in Africa. There are a few from the Middle East. There are um, curiously no American, no European, or no Asian defendants that have come to the ICC, meaning that there are many uh, instances of mass civilian death or cultural genocide that have never been prosecuted, right? I mean, a couple obvious ones. The bombing and starvation of Yemeni people at the hands of the Saudis, the treatment of the Uyghurs in China, the United States invasion of Iraq and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. So it seems like those political considerations, which you accurately pointed out, are very much hampering how far the ICC is willing to go. Yeah, some, somewhat is built in the system, right? The court is supposed to be a court of last resort. So in the first instance, domestic courts are meant to to deal with war criminals and crimes against humanity. So the court will never be in a position, even in a world where every major power supported it, it would never be in a position to do everything, right? To, to deal with all the atrocities committed in the international system. Of course, the pattern of which atrocity it deals with and which it doesn't deal with is very much related to the question which um, states have signed on to the Rome Statute and how the major powers of the day, particularly the permanent members of the Security Council, support this court when they support it. The United States is in the very sort of hypocritical position where it hasn't signed on to the Rome Statute, 
partly to insulate its own um, military and also the military of its allies, like in Israel, from the jurisdictional reach of the court. But it has occasionally supported the use of the court in contexts where the Security Council referred cases um, to the ICC, for instance, in Darfur. Mm. So that has has a lot to do with the question of which um, conflicts we see subject to investigation. I see. Professor Bryan, I actually saw you nod your head when I uh, described the list of defendants uh, that have appeared before the International Criminal Court thus far. Um, interesting. What I actually wanted to ask you is I keep coming back in my mind to what both of you have said about the uh, the centrality of proving intent when it comes to any of these really horrible and morally repugnant kinds of crimes. But, you know, few groups say these days, overtly, we want to murder millions. They're not as sort of uh, proudly systematic as as the Nazis were. I mean, nowadays we call it collateral damage, right? Um, And so if the stated intent is not to kill kill civilians, but that is the actual outcome made by the decisions of the warring parties, I mean, is it time to change international law to prevent those outcomes? Yeah, Professor Bryant, go ahead. Um, This is where I think um, uh, international law has some comparison with domestic law. Uh, If somebody is accused of of a crime, whether it's homicide or arson or whatever it is, this is a specific intent crime, right? You typically, as a prosecutor, have to prove that the person specifically intended to commit that crime. Uh, That doesn't mean that a prosecutor has to show that the person declared as he was burning a house down that he was committing arson. Oftentimes, you can infer the intent from the nature of the act that is uh, is being carried out, and this this is also true in international law. Uh, there's there's a, a concept called foreseeability. Uh, if 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 a course of action will result in a certain outcome that is reasonably foreseeable, then international law, much as domestic law, will infer a, a specific intent to commit that act. And in military affairs, there's a certain standard that is sometimes used, oftentimes used, calls it called the reasonable hypothetical military commander. It's it's the the counterpart to the reasonable person standard under our domestic law, and it uh, it, it takes essentially a rational person or the model of a rational person, and asks whether that person would have been able to foresee the the nature of the damage arising from the course of conduct he or she is is engaged in and if it is then that that is reasonably foreseeable and then we can infer a specific intent from that interesting okay so professor dill we only have about 30 seconds before we have to take our next break here but so much of the frustration uh that was mirrored in that uh, the beginning uh, bits of tape that we heard in this hour comes i believe authentically from people who say Waiting for provable acts of genocide or provable crimes against humanity per the, the, uh, the, out, uh, the list in the Rome Statute, for example, you're just waiting too long. It, it's the allowing of the deaths or, or harms of millions of people prior to things reaching the standard of being able to be prosecuted. I mean, what do you think about that? Law has different functions, right? It has um, criminal law has the function of holding people to account and expressing our strong opprobrium, and that takes time, and it should take time, right? We shouldn't try to leap over standards of due process because we're frustrated, but that also means we need law, other law, to do the prevention and the protection of civilians, which is also crucial. And here again, you know, there are questions about whether international law does what we need it to do, but I don't think we can ask that of international criminal law. I see. So, Yanina Dill and Michael Bryant. Stand by. A lot more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're joined today by Yanina Dill. She holds the chair in global security at Oxford University's School of Government, and she's co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. Michael Bryant is with us as well. He's a professor of history and legal studies at Bryant University and also author of A World History of War Crimes from Antiquity to the Present. Um, And I just want to let us listen in on a couple of previous trials that have happened in uh, the uh, late 20th and early 21st century. For example, the special tribunal that dealt with former Serbian president Slobodan Milosevic. Milosevic. He was tried in The Hague on 66 counts of crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes. And on the first day of his trial, Milosevic said he would represent himself. The judge asked him to reconsider. Now, do you want some time uh, to consider now whether you wish to be represented? I consider this tribunal force tribunal and indictments force indictments. It is illegal being not appointed by... UN General Assembly, so I have no need to appoint counsel to illegal organ. So that's former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic rejecting even the uh, the existence or the legal existence of the special tribunal uh, that was created to deal with the crimes in former Yugoslavia. Now, moving towards the Rwandan genocide. Felician Kabunga was a Rwandan businessman whose radio station infamously called on Hutus to murder their Tutsi neighbors, quote, like snakes in the grass. And after years of invading capture, he was brought before the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and charged with genocide. In support of the genocide, Kabunga did not need to wield a rifle or a machete at a roadblock. He did not need to pick up a microphone to call for extermination of Tutsi on the radio. Rather, he founded, funded, and served as president of the Radio Television Libre de Milcolin. Now, let's move towards the intricacies of the current conflict between Israel and Hamas. We spoke with Israeli religious scholar Moti Inbari. At, uh, the, at, he's at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. And he says Hamas's repeated calls for the killing of Jews are more than just words, um, was, as we saw on October 7th. Both sides of this conflict have used the terminology of genocide. Hamas covenant clearly calls for the 
killing and the destruction of the Jews and the quoting a hadith, which is a religious text that calls for Muslims to murder Jews and destroy them completely. And Hamas have already proved that they are committed to their words, and so we should believe them. Inbari also told us that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech not that long ago about the war being waged inside Gaza. And to Inbari's ear, he's an Israeli religious scholar, remember that, he said Netanyahu's speech made him nervous because it seemed to justify genocide. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in his last speech made references to two biblical stories. One is about the Amalekites and the second is about Joshua bin Nun. The biblical commandment is to obliterate the memory of Amalek, which basically means to commit a genocide against Amalek. The case of Joshua bin Nun is that, according to the biblical story, he completely destroyed every town that he reached. And the destruction included all men, women, children, also including their properties and their livestock. Everything was considered to be completely destroyed as a commandment made by God. Yanina Dill, why is it important that um, that Professor Modi Mbari pointed that out? So we have clearly seen a number of statements from the um, Israeli political and military leadership that would um, express something that we call genocidal intent, not just um, the sort of systematic lack of um, needing to distinguish between Palestinians and, and Hamas, but also the linking of Palestinians to, um, uh, you know, the dehumanization of Palestinians and these kind of biblical quotes. In international criminal law, what we would be looking for is that this kind of intent, this expression of intent is actually invested in action. So expressions of genocidal intent by themselves are not necessarily sort of definitive indications that genocide is being committed. You have to have a unity of the the act and the intent to actually show um, genocide. Um, The... There's also been pointed out that some of these statements were made by people who don't actually make decisions about the war. Mm. I'm really worried about these statements nonetheless, which are much, much more to the surface in this conflict than in any prior military action that the IDF um, undertook in Gaza. I'm worried because they set a tone within which often very young and conscripted IDF soldiers are sent into this incredibly difficult um, environment of urban warfare where they are themselves threatened and they go in there with um, the notion, you know, with the images of October 7th in their mind. If these statements set the tone in the way they do, this just exponentially raises the likelihood of atrocities being committed, of these soldiers not necessarily sticking even to their rules of engagement, provided these rules of engagement comply with law. Mm. So these statements are incredibly dangerous, even if they are not necessarily themselves definitive um, proof that the IDF is engaging in genocide. I see. But Michael Bryant, I mean, to be clear... Hamas has made similar statements about its intent regarding Israel for decades, right? And can't we say also that those—I mean, they're still saying them. There's there's audio of uh, uh, television news clips of Hamas leaders saying their intent is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, And we could see um, at least, you know, uh, uh, that made real on October 7th. Right. The intent and maybe because they're not as militarily powerful as Israel, um, they brought the destruction that they could. Um, but is is there any difference between the two? 
you know, in, in terms of like what Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders have been saying versus what Hamas has been saying. One thing I would say is that thus far, there is no evidence whatsoever that Israel has committed genocide in Gaza. I think that Professor Dill's point is extremely important, though. There is a tone, that's a word that, that Professor Dill used that I really agree with. There's a tone that it was that's been been established thus far by leading figures of the Israeli government, Benjamin Netanyahu being one, but some of his, his members of his cabinet and even members of the military, high-ranking military officers, who have used language that you frequently encounter in genocidal episodes, and it has not gotten to this point at this at this juncture. So I would really resist any effort to label what Israel is doing as being in any way genocide. But as we know from, from past experience, uh, language can lead over time to actions that slide in a genocidal mm. direction. There's some question as to whether at some point ethnic cleansing, what is referred to under uh, international law as ethnic cleansing, might arise perhaps in the West Bank, perhaps in Gaza, which, as we know, based upon historical precedent, has oftentimes eventuated in, in genocidal outcomes. I'm very troubled by uh, the use of biblical precedent in particular, the reference to the, uh, to Amalek and the Amalekites and to, to Joshua. This is an actual uh, phenomenon that has been verified by archaeologists. It's called harem, the, the, the solemn ban. It goes back to the Torah, the books of the Torah, um, and uh, has to do with uh, co commandments that were given by uh, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, to the Hebrew people to wipe out entire peoples like the Amalekites or the Jebusites, the people of the so-called seven nations. Whether this actually happened, in fact, we, you know, in, in the historical record, we don't really know. But the fact that Netanyahu and some other figures in the government are citing this in support of future policies uh, is, is troubling and uh, should really raise the alarm for the world community that is concerned about the possibility of genocide at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, and of course, just to circle back to where we were earlier, genocide is only one of the types mm -hmm. of, right, of, of, of crimes that uh, an international court might look at. There's you know, obviously uh, crimes against humanity, general war crimes as well, right? Um, did you want to add, add to that, uh, Professor? No, yes, that, that's right. And of course, everybody has been talking on, on the news as I was driving in today to your studio. The, the, the news was fraught with reports of... Uh, of the suffering in in the main hospital in Gaza today, which has been cut off from fuel, from electricity, and, um, and causing all kinds of havoc mm -hmm. with uh, with the well-being, the uh, the lives of patients there. Right. Arguably, this is condemned under international law, Geneva Conventions, Hague Conventions, a long line of of, of international principles and inter international precedents. So this this would be arguably, uh, depending on the circumstances, which had would have to be ascertained, it, it could be a violation of the law of war. Mm. Well, so Yanina, Yanina Dill, though, let's take a moment to focus on Hamas, right? Because as you said earlier, yeah. Hamas declared its intent, it uh, mm -hmm. and it and it acted on it on October seventh, deliberately targeting citizens, deliberately or civilians, I should say, deliberately. Um, uh, kidnapping and taking hostages. There were, you know, the 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 rapes and the murders of, you know, children to uh, to the elderly. I mean, how would Hamas? How is Hamas seen um, in the eyes of international law? Does it fall under the jurisdiction of something like the International Criminal Court? 
Yeah, yes, of course, okay. entirely. Right. Hamas is um, the the actions of Hamas are not necessarily attributable to Palestine as a state. If you are um, inclined to think it is a state, which I am, um, that doesn't at all mean that Hamas is not bound by international law. Non-state armed groups like Hamas are entirely bound by international humanitarian law. They are also um, under this jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So it's the same rules apply to them as apply to the IDF. And you're entirely right that the atrocities committed on October 7 fall under um, quite a sort of a laundry list of crimes, uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity that are under the jurisdiction of the Rome Statute. That includes hostage taking, it includes sexual violence, outrages upon personal dignity, murder and willful killing. So it's a really long list. And in some sense, the intent here um, to terrorize and attack the civilian population is relatively easily visible in this particular repertoire of violence because it's very hard to see any kind of military purpose behind it. It's also that some of these crimes really have no legitimate military purpose. So they are, you know, very obviously just that. They are means to terrorize the civilian population. And in the fullness of time, we will see whether it can be shown that um, the perpetrators of these attacks were aware that it was part of a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population, in which case it would also mm. be crimes against humanity. Well, as this we is in some sense sort of beyond doubt. You know, it's very hard to, to doubt that international lawyers spend less time talking about this because in some sense it's less um, doctrinally difficult to, to assess. I I see. Okay. Point well taken. But then that also means that if it's beyond doubt, what will what will international law do? <laughs> you know, you can you can not talk about it because it seems so obvious. But then um, mm. there isn't there the obligation to take action? Of course, we must yeah. talk about it. And um, I think the if you followed the statements of Karim Khan, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, um, they they very much always start with just acknowledging that, you know, that these crimes are under the jurisdiction of the court, um, that there is enough evidence here to investigate that he takes this very seriously, condemns that, mm. etc. So absolutely, this we must take action. Okay. So in the last few minutes of um, the program that we have today, I'd love to hear from both of you about um, whether you believe believe uh, international statutes on war crimes, et cetera, are adequate for the kinds of conflicts we see today? Because, Professor Bryan, I mean, you've written about the world history of war crimes. And and, and a very strong um, through line there is that humanity has always had a kind of repugnance for the wanton killing of civilians, right, or the targeting of civilians. Um, but as uh, the technology of war changes... We've seen sort of an evolution, a, a corollary evolution in the laws surrounding that. Civilians are um, are the num the highest number of casualties in modern wars. So it seems like there is some kind of uh, disconnect between the law and what uh, conflict is like today. What would you change or evolve, if anything? Yeah, one of the things that's things that's really bedeviled um, attempts to hold perpetrators accountable for the things that they do is this concept of, of military necessity and the idea that uh, in order to win a war, in order to achieve some great breakthrough in a war, uh, we need to consider suspending the law of war. So if we have to bomb a target in order to get at the, uh, at the enemy, at enemy soldiers, if that, you know, if that also means that several hundred civilians are to be killed, then sometimes, oftentimes, the decision is made to do that, which, of course, would be a violation of the principle of proportionality. And yet, if you are a powerful country and you are able to resist criminal indictment for yourself and for 
the people acting under your orders, then you can effectively act with a certain degree of impunity. So if, if there's anything that I could change, it would be trying to, um, to, to pare back on impunity and to compel or to persuade very powerful countries that it is in their interest to, um, to pursue international justice, including for themselves as well as other countries. Right. There seems to be um, space for greater moral leadership than amongst the most powerful nations. This is one of the examples in which morality, I think, does coincide with law. Oftentimes the two are, two are quite a distance from each other. But on this occasion, I think it's really important. Professor Dill, you have the last minute of the show. Same question to you. I mean, law permits some morally abhorrent things. You know, it brackets morality in some sense. And it also occasionally takes off the table militarily really effective and important courses of action. And we have to accept both of those things, that law isn't morally everything and that it can be militarily hampering us in order to basically uphold it for what it is. And that is our very last and best hope in a conflict like the one we are currently seeing, where both sides have really legitimate moral grievances against each other and where even outside unbiased observers can't really arbitrate between them very effectively. Law is a minimum standard. So if it looks like you're falling short of it, you're already massively in moral trouble. But it is really our best hope here for communicating a across the divide and upholding some very minimal humanitarian standards. It's all about compliance, not about changing the law. Mm. It almost also sounds like, a, in a sense, a pact with the devil, right? In order to, to target what can be prosecuted, in order to hopefully uh, deter the worst of the worst crimes. Absolutely, mm. yes. Well, Professor Dill, uh, Yanina Dill, she's the chair of global security at Oxford University School of Government and co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And Michael Bryant, professor of history and legal studies at Bryant University and vice president of the Bornstein Holocaust Education Center, author of A World History of War Crimes, From Antiquity to the Present. Professor Bryant, thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.